Hi, my name is Jason Flom, and by now you probably know what we do here on Righteous Convictions, and this episode, the last one before our summer 2021 hiatus, will be no different. Today's guest is a true leader of the criminal legal reform movement whose perspective and motivation come from a childhood spent visiting his parents in maximum security prisons. I learned since before I can even remember that our country's approach to mass incarceration is not making us safer. It's not helping victims heal, and it's actually tearing apart families and communities and bankrupting local governments, starving our neighborhoods of the resources we need to build the kind of vibrant and safe communities that we all want to live in. His election promised vast change to an unjust system in San Francisco, and as their 29th district attorney, he's already delivered so much on that promise. Chesa Boudin, right now on Righteous Convictions. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome back to Righteous Convictions. Today, I'm so excited because I'm interviewing one of my personal heroes, the only DA in the history of America who spent his entire childhood and formative years only seeing his parents behind bars. And he has succeeded in ways that are truly mind-blowing. And we're about to get into that. But first of all, Chesa Boudin, welcome to Righteous Convictions. Thanks so much, Jason. It's great to be here. And yeah, you know, I did spend the first 22 years of my life visiting my mother behind bars. My father is still incarcerated. And it certainly makes me a a bit of an unusual top cop, as they say, elected district attorney. And I'm really excited to be here today and just share some of the work we've done in the 18 months or so since I took office. Yes, and we're going to talk about that. But just let's start at the beginning. Growing up, take us back to that, because none of us can imagine what that experience must have been like. Were you an infant when your parents went to prison? Exactly. I have no memory of what exactly happened that day, but I'll tell you how it played out. I I was 14 months old, living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. My parents dropped me at the babysitter, and they told the babysitter they'd come back to pick me up that night. Um, They never did. Instead, that day, my parents participated in an armed robbery of a Brinks truck. And although my parents weren't actually at the scene of the robbery, and they weren't even armed themselves, they were just driving switch car. The robbery went terribly wrong. A security guard was shot and killed. Two police officers were shot and killed. My parents were both arrested that day. And again, I don't remember their arrest. I don't even remember when a judge sentenced my mother to 20 years to life or my father to 75 years to life. I don't remember later that day getting picked up 
not by my parents, but by friends and then getting handed off to my grandparents. I don't remember the crisis that my entire family was thrown into, or of course, the horrific suffering of the three other families whose fathers were killed that day. My earliest memories are actually waiting in line. Mostly black and brown women and children were in those lines with me outside prison gates, going through metal detectors, you know, getting patted down and searched just to be able to go see our parents, just to be able to give them a hug. And I've been visiting my parents ever since. I spent 22 years visiting my mother in New York State prisons. I still visit my father in New York State prisons to this day. That experience is one which, of course, was a profoundly impactful one on my life. I learned since before I can even remember that our country's approach to mass incarceration is not making us safer. It's not helping victims heal, and it's actually tearing apart families and communities and bankrupting local governments, starving our neighborhoods of the resources we need to build the kind of vibrant and safe communities that we all want to live in. Um, and that's really the experience that led me to where I am today. Yeah, but before you even could get to where you are today, he ends up going, I'm talking about you in the third person, forgive me, but after graduating Yale and Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar, earning two master's degrees, one in forced migration, another in public policy in Latin America, he returned to Yale for his Juris Doctorate before working as a law clerk. In 2015, he became a public defender in San Francisco, and in 2019, at 39, Chesa was elected as San Francisco's top prosecutor and became really, I think, a true leader of the reform movement. I'm trying to get to the bottom of what was it inside of you that allowed you to not only deal with that trauma, call it what it is, but also to turn it into this driving force that allowed you to actually excel beyond, I think, maybe what you would have been able to do had your parents been around. No, I think that's that's certainly right to a large extent. And look, I don't want to gloss over the challenges. The early years, the first five, 10 years, and even to this day, the challenges of having incarcerated parents are real. I didn't fully learn to read till I was nine years old. I had a wide range of social and, and academic challenges that are really common amongst children with incarcerated parents. I, like the millions of other kids in this country who grow up with a parent behind bars, experienced everything from anger to stigma to shame to guilt and feelings of being unlovable. Or there were times when I, I, I would say to the parents who raised me, you know, if only I could have talked, I would have told them not to go that day and risk what they risked. But of course, I couldn't talk. I was 14 months old. And, and yet, I felt as a child that somehow it had been my responsibility, that if I'd been more lovable, maybe they wouldn't have risked losing me. Now, those kinds of emotions and feelings are really common amongst children whose parents have been arrested and incarcerated. And most of the millions of American kids who experience parental incarceration do not have anywhere near the privileges or opportunities that I had growing up that enabled me to overcome those early childhood challenges. And as you said, kind of channel them into the academic energy and professional success. Some of the children I grew up with in prison visiting rooms tragically ended up incarcerated. It's an example of the ways in which this country's addiction to locking people up actually creates an intergenerational cycle of crime, victimization, and incarceration. 
It's a cycle that must be broken, and you're helping break it right now, and I want to get to that. But before we do, there's one thing that sticks out about the saga of your parents, which is that they both were charged and convicted of the same crime, right? In fact, they participated in the exact same way, but one received a sentence of 20 to life, and the other received a sentence, your dad received a sentence of 75 years Can you talk about why that happened and how that shaped your current philosophy on sentencing and incarceration? Absolutely. You know, as you point out, my parents did almost exactly the same thing. They were charged with the same crimes. Their level of culpability was all but identical. And yet they ended up with these vastly different sentences. At core, it's a classic example of the arbitrary outcomes in our criminal justice system. My mother was released in 2003. My father will likely never get out. And they did exactly the same thing. So how do we explain that? You know, you can look at the particulars of the case. My mother had a good team of lawyers. My dad made the mistake of refusing legal help and representing himself. My mother negotiated a deal on the eve of trial in which she pled guilty to some reduced charges. My father went to trial and lost, as of course he was going to when he refused legal help. My mother was a woman. My father was a man. Those are a few of the kind of arbitrary factors that contributed to these disproportionate outcomes. But it really highlights for me, and I think it's just one example among infinite examples that we see every day in America's criminal legal system of how we are so focused on punishment that we often lose track of equity or of what the underlying goals of our criminal legal system should be, whether rehabilitation, whether investing and supporting victims, whether effective deterrence and law enforcement. Instead, somebody like my father, who's now 76 years old, who has all the ailments you'd expect of someone who's just weathered a year and a half in prison with a COVID pandemic on the tail end of 40 years of incarceration, who's elderly, who has a perfect discipline record, and yet who has no prospect whatsoever of ever being released, it's a really myopic approach that this country has committed to, to punishment rather than healing, to retribution rather than rehabilitation. And we've got to do better if we're serious about equal protection under law, if we're serious about breaking a cycle rather than perpetuating one. This episode is underwritten by Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Orton, and Garrison, a leading international law firm. Paul Weiss has long had an unwavering commitment to providing impactful pro bono legal assistance to the most vulnerable members of our society and in support of the public interest, including extensive work in the criminal justice area. On the campaign trail, we were crystal clear totally transparent with voters about what our goals were. And there were, you know, at core, three fundamental pillars of our campaign platform. One of them was reducing reliance on incarceration, ending mass incarceration, focusing instead on root causes of crime to build safety. Second, expanding victim services, recognizing that resources need to get shifted from punishment to healing. And third, equal enforcement of the law. That means not only using the power of the prosecutor to go after poor black and brown young men, but also police accountability. 
also civil enforcement against companies that steal from their employees or dump toxic waste in ways that put all of us at risk. In the first year, here's what we have witnessed Chesa and his team accomplish. Firing of seven prosecutors and a total restructuring of the office. The ending of status enhancements for three strikes or gang membership, which has been a huge problem in California. No longer seeking charges for contraband found during pretextual stops. Supporting potential victims of domestic violence during stay-at-home orders. Launched the Economic Crimes Against Workers Unit. Diversion programs for primary caregiver parents charged with misdemeanors or nonviolent felonies. Uh, replaced cash bail with a risk-based system. Called on California State Bar to prohibit prosecutors from accepting police union campaign contributions. Uh, yeah. Passed a resolution to prohibit the rehiring of problematic officers in other jurisdictions, a problem that is a national problem. And no charges wherein the sole evidence is the word of a problematic officer until approved by the DA. Protecting immigrants from deportation, creating a wrongful convictions unit. We don't have time to talk about all the things you're doing, but it is important to note that you reduced the jail population in San Francisco by around 50% in the first six months. And I'm sure I hear a few people going, <gasps> right? Like, oh no, that's going to make San Francisco so dangerous. Of course there's crime. There's always going to be crime. But the fact is the chase of crime wave never seems to have materialized. In fact, the opposite has happened. Am I right? That's right. In that process, I put together a team of folks in my office and we worked with public defenders and the jail medical staff and probation and the sheriff's department. And we went through on a daily basis, everybody in the jail. And we tried to identify people that maybe didn't have to be incarcerated. And we found some amazing things. We found some people who honestly never should have been in the jail in the first place. I'll give you one example. We found a woman serving a jail sentence for a misdemeanor conviction. It was her first ever criminal conviction. And it was related to her use of dangerous drugs, as is the case with about 75% of people booked into our county jail, drug addiction, mental illness, or both. Well, this young woman was pregnant and it was a high risk pregnancy. Now, there is no reason in a decent, caring, humane society that cares about public safety that someone with a high-risk pregnancy and no criminal history should be serving jail time on a misdemeanor conviction. No reason whatsoever. In fact, we sort of showed that in San Francisco, it's possible to safely decarcerate, that actually short periods of incarceration lead to more crime, not less. And so by reducing our reliance on incarceration, we've actually seen the crime rates fall. Overall crime since I took office is down by about 20%. And certain categories of crime that are particularly important, crimes like robbery that are a violent crime that is you know, one of the highest frequency crimes in San Francisco, that's down by about 20%, assaults down by about 15%, rape down by about 50%, theft and car break-ins were down by about 40% in 2020 compared to the year before I took office. Now, obviously, a lot of that has to do with the pandemic. And we're seeing major shifts in how we live our lives and people working from home. But all the folks who said, if you release people, it will lead to an increase in crime. Actually, we saw the opposite. And it's a really important lesson as we think about what safety looks like and how we build healthier communities. Well, what do you say to people? It's a big argument on the right, right? There's theft, there's low level theft taking place. Somebody walks into a store and just walked out with a coat because they knew they weren't going to get prosecuted. And like, you know, my thing is if somebody needs a coat that badly, let's look at why they needed that coat. But okay, that's a separate story. What do you say about that? 
Well, look, you know, keeping San Francisco safe, allowing our businesses to to thrive, allowing tourists to come and enjoy our city, all of that is a critical part of my job. And, and my office takes it really seriously. But the fact of the matter is thefts are down by more than 40% in 2020. They're down by another 20% so far in 2021. So yes, we have ongoing problems with property crime in San Francisco. That's not a new problem. That doesn't exist only because of my policies. In fact, the year when San Francisco had the most auto burglaries was in 2017, and they've been steadily falling since then. So first of all, it's a bit of fear-mongering and exploitation and sensationalization of crime to attack reform policies, to undermine racial justice. Second of all, we know that we can never lock our way up out of problems like auto burglaries. Let me tell you why. Police in San Francisco, which is not a criticism of police, I want to be clear. This is true in many other jurisdictions. These numbers are not unusual. Police in San Francisco only make arrests in about 3% of thefts, whether shoplifting or auto burglaries. 3%. That means 97% of the time that a theft or car break-in occurs and it gets reported to police, nobody's even being arrested. If we focus narrowly on really draconian, harsh punishments for the 3% of people that are actually getting arrested, it's not going to change anything. It's simply going to move us backwards in time to an era of mass incarceration that starves our law enforcement budget and our public health budget and our public education budgets of the resources they need to prevent future crime in the long run. We need to be focused on root causes of crime. As you said, why is it that somebody needs that coat in the first place? Now, we're not going to be able to solve all those problems from within the district attorney's office, but we need to focus our resources on the crimes that have the most serious consequences for victims and the highest stakes for the people we accuse. Murder, armed robbery, weapons offenses. That's my priority. Violent crimes. And when it comes to lower level offenses, look, we prosecute Crimes from shoplifting all the way up to murder. Since I took office, we filed over 6,000 new criminal cases. We are prosecuting cases when police bring them to us. But we're not focusing on incarceration as a metric of success. Instead, if someone gets arrested for shoplifting and they're unhoused or have a substance dependence that's leading to their arrests, we connect them with services, housing, drug treatment, mental health care, we have a wide array of diversion programs that help people engage with services that prevent them from getting arrested in the future. We know that jails and prisons all across this country have become revolving doors that destabilize lives, that warehouse human beings, and that do nothing to get at the root causes of crime and therefore do nothing to make us safer. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year 
equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. The San Francisco Police Officers Association president, Tony Montoya, said, and I quote, that you're kind of almost a criminal first, victim second type approach. That's what he was talking about, about your approach, when actually we know that it's rehabilitative, compassionate, and now proven effective. So how do you deal with that challenge? I really believe that the majority of officers And I know that the chief of police is focused on the same thing I am, making our city safe. But the police union is focused on trying to score political points, on standing in the way of reforms that could build trust between communities and law enforcement, and that could make the department more effective at building safety. Now, I I focus on working with Police Chief Scott and with all the members of the police department that are out there doing the job day in, day out to help improve public safety, to help serve those who've been harmed by crime, and to help make San Francisco a better place for all of us to live in. Unfortunately, the police union is going to promote fear-mongering as a way to justify their budgets and their staffing levels. I'm not going to let them or their fear-mongering distract me from the work I promised voters I'd do. You know, there's an effort to recall you right now. I don't know if you want to talk about it. I'll speak to it briefly. You know, the the first recall Chase uh, website URL was actually uh, paid for the very week I was sworn into office. So we know what this is about, right? This is not about something I've done or not done in office, an 18-month period that's been totally defined by trying to respond to a COVID pandemic that has shut down our courts, that has doubled the unemployment rate, that has drastically reduced availability in homeless shelters and drug treatment facilities, right? Despite that, as I said, we in my office and San Francisco overall has a tremendous amount to be proud of. This recall is about exploiting tragedies, tragedies that occur in any jurisdiction, regardless of law enforcement policies, and using those tragedies to roll back criminal justice reform, and policies aimed at addressing deep-rooted, long-standing racial inequities. The first recall, just to be really clear about who's behind this, the first recall campaign, there's two of them. They can't agree to work together. So there's two separate campaigns. One of them was launched by a failed Republican mayoral candidate. 
and is backed primarily by an investor that lives not even in San Francisco, but in Chicago. The second recall campaign has on its website, as one of its main supporters, a partner at the law firm that defends every single one of the police officers and sheriff's deputies that my office is currently prosecuting. So let's be clear about who's behind this, what their values are, what they represent. This is a movement designed to distract, to spread misinformation and fear in order to defend a failed status quo. I am not going to be distracted, and we're going to continue fighting to build a safer San Francisco for everyone. Amen to that. And now I have two questions left. The first one, I love asking this question. I do it every week on the show. If you had a magic wand, what problem would you fix? Man, there are so many problems. If I had to pick one, I would say the housing crisis. You know, about 30% of people who are booked into our jail are housing insecure or on the streets at the time of their arrest. And when people who are housing insecure come into jail, it's usually a lot worse for them on the way out. Often, everything they own gets taken, thrown out, disappeared while they're in custody. People literally have nothing. And it makes all of us less safe. You know, we need people to have housing. Uh, People who live on the streets are not only more likely to be arrested, but also more likely to be victims of crime themselves, something that's all too often overlooked. And we know that there are millions of kids in this country growing up trying to get an education, trying to go to school, trying to get enough to eat while living in tents, in the back of cars or on our streets. Providing everybody in our community with a safe place to live is a critical first step to build in the kind of safe, vibrant communities that we all want to call home. And finally, um, first of all, thank you again for taking the time out to be on Righteous Convictions. And I wish you all the best as you continue your amazing, amazing work. So the last question is, uh, well, there's not a question. It's just a section of the show we call Words of Wisdom, where I turn my microphone off, kick back, leave my headphones on, close my eyes and listen and learn. So over to you for anything you want to talk about as we close the show. I just want to kind of stay grounded myself. And I would encourage everyone listening to stay grounded in humanity, in people and in optimism. You know, there's so much negativity. There's so much hostility. There's so much anxiety in our daily lives. It's expressed on social media and TV shows and road rage And we need to remember that we have this unbelievably unique connection as humans, that we depend on each other, that we support each other, that we love each other. And the more we can bring that perspective to all of our interactions, whether we're going to the hospital, as I've done, to visit people who've been victims of horrific stabbings, or whether we're making decisions about what punishment and what form of accountability to impose on the person who caused that harm. We have to lead with love. We have to remember our humanity and the humanity of every single person whose lives our work touches. Thank you for listening to Righteous Convictions. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Righteous Convictions is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1.
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.